We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we create, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalung Nation. We respect and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. This is Impact Zone, stories from the floods. This is a space for survivors, first responders and community members to share their untold stories from the floods of 2022 and share ideas about the rebuilding of a community in the wake of a disaster. Some names and details have been omitted due to privacy or the need to protect sensitive information. We acknowledge that story is at times subject to emotion, and whilst facts are important, this space is exclusively for remembering the stories that defined a community in crisis, as told by the people of the Northern Rivers. I am going to go as far as to say that the following interview is one of my favourite conversations I've had in the past few weeks. What is reflected is the power of matriarchy, the sense of humanity that we turn back to when we are faced with hardship, and the incredible power of listening. I am so in awe of our Indigenous community and of the power of people. Today, we speak to Nadala Barker, a First Nations artist and teacher at the local bush school. Nadala entered the flood recovery efforts two days in after being trapped on her property. She has been largely working with the Courier Mail, Australia's leading Indigenous newspaper, in the weeks since. I invite you to listen carefully as her truth, realities and wisdom are deeply profound. And I am so grateful for this opportunity to keep community alive. So I'm really lucky to have Nadala in the studio today. And Nadala, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we could find you over the past few weeks, how you managed to be there and kind of synopsize your experience um, on the ground? Sure. Um, so I have been mostly based out at Koori Mail in the small, which is usually uh, the leading Australian Indigenous newspaper, but has been serving as a hub of Aboriginal people organising and distributing for other Aboriginal people as well as everyone else. Um, I landed there because I had the capacity to. Um, Having spent the first few days of the storm locked into my house, I wasn't able to go out and do the rescue efforts or anything. So when, you know, the afternoon of day two came around, it was almost day three, I had the capacity to come in fresh and organise what needed to be organised. Um, the first few days I spent in Malam, but then being Indigenous myself, I felt really called to go and help out an organisation which was really lacking in um, just in manpower at the time. Um, so that's why I've been at Curry Mail most of the time. Um, and my job mostly involves processing donations. Um, so people will come with car loads full of things, um, truckloads at times, and we just kind of have to organise it on the fly and send it out to communities who need it. So the way that it works is that a lot of people will call Curry Mail um, or come and see Ella and Kiralee and Naomi and Amarina and the absolute banquet of extraordinary Indigenous women and men who are working there, um, volunteering their time. 
and say, hey, there's about 20 families in this community that can't be accessed and this is the things that they need. Hey, this lady down the road who has mud in her house and needs some help. And then volunteers come to us and go, how can we help? And we say, great, you take a bucket, you go there. You jump in that car, go deliver things to Woodburn. You do this, you do that. And we've kind of been in this coordination hub. Um, and my job is mostly just processing all the objects and essential things that are needed and passing it on to Kiralee, who then takes care of the delivery, whether that's, you know, people with four-wheel drives delivering it out to communities or, you know, touristic helicopters acting as emergency vehicles doing massive drops. Obviously, during this time period, there have been a lot of competing narratives, uh, particularly where, I guess, government and agency support is concerned. Um, how did you find interacting with the people who were on the ground and were representing those agencies? Was the helplessness that we felt as a community felt by them too? I think if anything, it was felt stronger by them because our helplessness as a community shedded very quickly when we realised that the white horse wasn't going to come quick enough, so we were just going to do it ourselves and we had the agency to just do it, not have to ask for permission and say... I don't need your approval. I'm just going to get into this boat and go save this family and that I don't have anybody to answer to. I think for the men and women in the ADF and, you know, in in a lot of the services that are state-run, their helplessness I have so much empathy for because, you know, we there's this story about there's these three girls, two of whom are quite dear friends of mine, who managed to secure a truck. They learned how to drive the truck on that day, on that morning, and secured a truck and filled it full of water because the instructions that were given at Woodburn were not to wash any babies, any cuts, or any elderly people in the town's water because it was so dirty. So they filled the truck up with water from all the different centres who had water to give. They went around all the different centres, filled the truck up, and went down to Woodburn. Now, these are epic women, right? Like absolute Amazons, like, crazy cool chicks who you know just didn't even have the proper license for it but just did it again this is an amazing thing that has happened is that we didn't need to follow the rules because number one there was no one to enforce them but number two we weren't going to ask anybody for permission if there's water needed over there in a truck you just learn how to drive the truck and you drive it you youtube that shit and you, you get just in the car <laughs> <laughs> and they got there and when they got there they pulled up to the drop-off point and there was about 30 members of the adf so, you know, soldiers and reserves who were sitting there. And they were like, oh, can you guys help us unload the water? And they looked at them and they're like, we're so sorry, it's out of our chain of command. We can't do it. And at first, you know, a couple of the girls that I know who were quite the fiery type were like, what do you mean? They're like, no, we were told that before coming here, we can't just act on our own volition. We have to follow a chain of command. And we can put it up the chain of command. We'll do it right now. But we don't know how long it'll be until it's approved. So the girls were like, well, we're here, so we're just going to start unloading it. So they unload like a truck full of water onto the sidewalk. Locals walk past, don't know what's happening. The locals start shouting abuse at the ADF people. So they're sitting here receiving it. The girls are trying somewhere in the middle to be like, wait, no, it's not their fault. Like they're waiting. And then the local community members who are already feeling disempowered are having to go at the other people, at the ADF. 
after two hours, they finally get their approval. There was like one or two things of water left. So they jump on, which was a terrible PR idea because people were like, oh, you jump on when there's nothing left to do. But I think that's a perfect example of how the systems are, number one, too clunky and way too slow, but also actually divide us as a community. Right, because there's people there who know what to do, but they can't do it because of system. And I mean, I understand that there is some restraint that be- needs to be put in place because, you know, you don't want just a bunch of yahoos rocking up doing whatever they want either. But there's a certain line where it's gone too far. That these men and women have left their home unpaid to come and help and they're expected to sit there when they could just help unload a truck, is so unfair and frustrating for them. And it's so unfair and traumatising for a community to see uniformed people who are there to help them not helping them. It's causing trauma for everyone involved. Because these systems are clunky and refusing to acknowledge common sense, refusing to acknowledge human capacity. So I have this beautiful story about some firefighters who, from the first day of the floods, decided to pack civilian clothes into the fire trucks anytime they went out on call. Now, keep it. what I'm going to tell you is super illegal. They are not allowed to do this. Not only could they lose their jobs, they could be charged for doing this. But they would go out onto calls and try to put through the call, you know, onto their superiors. And if it wasn't approved and they thought that it should be done, they would just take their uniforms off and do it anyway. To me, that is a sign of, of people who have remembered their empowerment, remembered their humanity, who were taking the risks and the bravery and the courage to go and do what needs to be done at their own risk. And the system is just putting more pressure onto them, more pressure. These are men and women who are capable of doing the things with the equipment. And so they decided, I'm not going to ask for permission. They would just take their uniforms off and do it anyway. I love that story. But it also makes me a little bit sad to know that those men and women put themselves at tremendous amount of risks of losing their livelihoods just to do the right thing. And I think if a system is stopping us from doing the right thing, then that system is obsolete. What does this sort of crisis and this sort of, you know, relief effort say about humans? Um, It's a really beautiful question. I think for me, the human nature component has been the most extraordinary learning and absolute gift out of this flood and I think it's best exemplified in a story so on the first day in Malambimbi I was just helping coordinate some people and volunteers around and I noticed a little boy across the street on a push bike he must be 12 or 13 years old and he's just running back and forth and back and forth and I can see him so I decided to cross over and just check in see if he needs anything I'm like oh Hey, brother, you're right. Do you need anything? He looks down at his feet, hops off his bike, and, you know, at first isn't really answering, and then out of the back of his jeans, he pulls like a half-open tube of sablon, you know, like disinfectant cream. Right, and I looked at him, and he was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if you need this, maybe, maybe, I don't know. And that self-doubt kicks in, and I can see him almost taking the sablon back and putting it in his backpack, and I'm like, no, we need it. We need it, and we need you. And in that moment, you could just see the relief in his face and his body as he just goes right I knew it and I was like can you go sit over there and help that lady carry her bags when she's done to her car and he was like yep and that boy did not leave the entire day 
He stayed helping people carry things to and from their cars, sitting down with people having cups of tea. And I think that little boy on the bike with the Savlon is all of It perfectly exemplifies who we are because we're not sure how to help. Right? This little boy was riding back and forth because he didn't know if the tube of Savlon was the right thing to do or if walking in was the right thing to do. All he knew is that there was help that was needed and he wanted to help, that he was drawn to the community. He was pulled. There was something magnetizing him to organize as a group, even at the age of 12, 13, right? Knowing that we belong together, knowing that we have a role for each other, just not entirely sure how to do it. And once we're granted that permission, then it starts to flow. And with this little boy, you didn't need to tell him. Once I told him, you help the lady with the bags, that's what he was doing. He was flowing in that role and he was enjoying it and he was empowered and I think that's what, the, that's what the floods gave all of us. It gave us the permission to show up and be with each other and tap into the true nature of what it means to be a human. And I, I refuse to believe, you know, that this story that the westernized world keeps pushing on us, that somehow we're inherently individualistic and self-interested, and it's not true. It's not true. Over the course of the last three weeks, I have seen people deliver their cars full of things you know, aware that if they even have the slightest bit of excess, even if they had the slightest bit of, of something that they might not need to survive in that moment, they'd give it. They'd give it away. They'd open their homes. And that's who we are. That's the How is that different, being in flow with community and standing alongside from traditional models of charity? When you have excess, chopping that off, you know, your tree to give to someone else who doesn't have enough. How do those two things kind of compare? Um, I think what we're talking about here is the difference between charity and solidarity. I think fundamentally the difference between charity and solidarity is that solidarity comes from a place of knowing your place in the world and acting from that, whereas charity doesn't want to move from privilege and if anything just sets you on a high horse on top of your privilege, of saying, look at me, I have given a crumb away, I am great. And I don't think that that's helpful for anyone because in that mentality you become the saviour, someone requires to be the bottom of the barrel. It's beautiful that you use the, the imagery of the tree because in the westernised model of, of charity, right, it's saying we are all a tree and I have a lot of branches and I shall cut one of my branches off and give it to you. And that's the idea of charity, right? It's like you are this being and you've, you've removed something from yourself in order to give it to someone else. But in reality, solidarity is realizing that you can be the tree and simply by being the tree exuding shade and maybe that's your service. Maybe that's the solidarity. And you know what? If you're a tall tree and the water starts to rise around you, the animals are going to crawl up your spine simply because... You are what they need. Solidarity is understanding that we are not entitled to keep everything that is ours simply by virtue of us thinking it is ours. Right? Our existence doesn't belong just to us. An excess, particularly unnecessary amount of excess that we're talking about in a world that's, you know, where the rich have more money than they could possibly use in a lifetime while others are scavenging for crumbs... The problem with charity is saying 
you deserve a gold star because you are giving away your excess rather than the prize is to simply be and exist as a being and a being understand its role within the world. And to have excess makes you just as sick as not having enough. How can we find stability and understand that actually we're people, we're alive, if we have too much, if we get into this hoarding mentality and how much we have, whether we're talking about energy, whether we're talking about resources, whether we're talking about, you know, capacity to do something, and then it rewarded every time we give away a crumb of it, it doesn't actually encourage us to exist together. The problem with charity is that it says someone is better than the other, that there must be a victim, whereas there isn't. There's just a system that's rigged, and people who are taught to hold on to that system and keep it in its place. But solidarity is releasing that tether to a system which is unfair, to a system where no one asks to be bought into. And it's just releasing that and allowing things to flow again. Over the past few weeks, who are the voices that we aren't hearing? Who are the faces that we aren't seeing? And what is it that we're missing in that process? Yeah, it, I, I suppose it's not so much the voices that are forgotten, it's the voices that don't enter the conversations because those communities don't enter the spaces where the conversations are had. I completely want to disclose, you know, that everything is always biased and that the stance that I'm coming from is being an Indigenous woman working with Koori Mail out at Lismore, seeing firsthand those communities. But I think there's two very distinct groups, the first being Indigenous people who have been exponentially worse off than everyone else in the floods because that the lands that they were given back by the government are floodlands. I mean, Cabbage Tree Island is a perfect example of that. They had to fight a piece of land back, and it's the lowest of the lows. And so, they, you know, that whole community is going to have to be rebuilt. So Indigenous communities and the LGBTQI plus community, because, and again, this taps back into our issue of charity, is that it allows you to give in a way that requires no change at all. And at the moment, a lot of the charities are religious, right? We're talking Red Cross, we're talking Salvation Army. If you are a queer-identifying person, you might not feel welcome in those settings, right, that abide by a completely different set of ethics. And this is not a judgment value on anyone. It's just saying that when the help is held by people who are incompatible with the community, that becomes problematic. And I think that, this is also true for Indigenous communities because a lot of them are already quite reticent of the state or reticent of big organisations because of the stolen generation and, and, you know, the black history that Australia has. So I think those voices have been left out because the communities have been left out, right? They're not at the EVAC centres. They would rather be neck deep in the mud on their own country than to tap into systems that they don't feel welcome into. So I think that's, that's a really important conversation to have, which is why I'm so, so proud to have been allowed into, you know, the microcosm that crew mail has become because it's such a safe place for people to arrive and to show up however they decide to present with whatever needs they have. You know, there is no judgment if someone rocks up and tells us they want tobacco and, you know, they just want to have a beer and sit down. If it's nine in the morning and someone wants to have a beer on a sidewalk, then that's their business. There's not going to be any judgment on our end. For me, that's been 
that's been really beautiful to see people come through and ask for help and be seen as they are, not have to fit the role of, oh, I'm the receiving victim. I'd rather just say, like, no, I could be a bit of a kooky lady who maybe has issues with her mental health and, you know, is, is just needing the things that she needs. And I think those are the voices that are forgotten. You know, and I think what's happened at Kurumail, Naomi words this very well the other day. She said, we're not going to wait for a seat at the table. We built our own table. And if you want to come, you can sit. But it's our table. And we are going to decide how we take care of our mob. And for me, that was just a perfect exemplification of everything that has been done, not just at Kurumail, but everywhere for all of these communities that people were realising that we don't need to ask for permission. We will organise how we choose to organise. And the government's response was too slow, which meant that we stepped up. We organised. We are continuing to organise. And if the government has a seat at our table, then they need to remember that it's our table. But I think it's fundamentally changed something within community, but also within a lot of us. It's real realisation that no one is coming to save you. But the world that you can create is so much better than the world that we've been given. It opens this very interesting doorway and porthole into how we view dignity in our human experience. And I think listening to a lot of the stories, it's really clear to me that dignity has had a massive role in how you guys have designed the way that you run the system at Mail. Mm-hmm. and how you deliver kind of a person to their, their needs, I guess. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you've seen dignity explored and become a major theme of what you have been doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to give a very concrete example, the way that the donations are organised is that you know, rather than in a traditional evac centre, you'd have, you know, a couple ladies or people at the table and then boxes of pre-made stuff and, you know, you can sign your name down and get a box and walk away. We've set it up like a supermarket. So we've set it up in aisles and there's big boxes at the front and people come, take a box and fill it with whatever they choose, as much as they choose, and they get to pick everything that goes in there. You know, it's not just like, oh, I need some conditioner. Here, have this bottom of the one. If they would like a herbal essence, then they can have the herbal essence. If they would like 20 boxes of beans, they can have that. Right? I think the problem with a lot of traditional structures is that in situations of emergency, it breeds this idea of scarcity, which says if you are the victim, you will have these minimum things and creates this benchmark. And I think that everyone loses their dignity in that. The people receiving lose their dignity because then they become the recipients of this pre-made box and they can just see that they're one of hundreds of people with no sense of agency. And it removes dignity and agency for the people exercising that system because it removes any humanity from the interaction. Moving even further in that question is the absolute waste that those types of boxes create because people don't even want half the things in there. So I think the first thing with dignity is allowing the systems to reflect humanity rather than 
creating systems for an emergency and then trying to fit humans in there, right, within roles. It's going, how do we start with people? How do we start with their needs? And sometimes, like, man, my role sometimes can look like holding a box for a lady. Say the other day, right, this lady came in. Her name is Jeanette. She has nine grandchildren currently living with her, right? So it's her and her nine grandchildren, And we're walking through and I have a handful of boxes, me and this other volunteer, and she's just filling them. And she's looking through the toothbrushes and there's like hundreds of toothbrushes and she wants to pick a specifically green one because one of her grandchildren likes a green toothbrush or likes the colour green. And it's like in that moment, it's not that she's being picky or wasting time or wasting my time. It's that she's creating a moment of humanity and relief for that child when, you know, she gets to go home and be like, look, I found you a green one. And that kid could be like, yes, I'm still special. Yes, I'm still me. My, my granny still knows that I like green. Right? It's like how do we create systems that aid humanity first and foremost in all of us in a way that allows dignity and agency and respect? Right, And so when she told us what she was looking for, you know, I was like, what are you looking for in the toothbrush? She said, I want one that's green because my granddaughter likes it. And then three of us were just like digging through this box, being like, we need a green one, because it was like, that is humanity. Right? It's not about oral health. It's about humanity. And I think too often we forget about that for the sake of efficiency, and it's like, well, what's the use of efficiency if there is no humanity to support? Right? And I think dignity, and the example of the supermarket is a perfect supermarket style but it's a very good supermarket because everything is free (laughs) (laughs) is like that it just it allows us to no longer have to judge each other right every time that volunteers come in and i'm like oh people can can take as much as they want as little as they want they can take the time that they want and people like oh they're stealing is it stealing if they take too much and i was like man if it can make you feel better to sit in a house with 20 boxes of baked beans around you and take the baked beans, they're donations, right? And I think that this taps in again to this idea of, you know, it's not because you make a donation that you have any right to decide what happens with it, right? And I know this is a bit of a sticky topic, but I think it buys back into that topic that we were talking earlier about charity versus solidarity. Is going, well, if you have an excess at home, it's actually just the right thing for you to do to give it. But that doesn't give you a voice on where those baked beans go. They will go wherever they need to go for whatever purpose they need to have. Maybe it's to be eaten. Maybe it's to give someone a sense of security and comfort. Whatever it is, it's like you don't have power on what happens before and it's just trusting that once you give it away, there's a system in place that's going to make sure it's used well And I think that's what a lot of us are feeling as so reassuring and nurturing and observing our own community stepping up is that it's reinstilling a trust in a system, not feeling like you need to be doing everything. Because I know that for myself in everyday life, it feels really exhausting at times to feel as though, you know, I can't just go to the shop and buy any brand of toothpaste I need to do like three hours of research to make sure I'm not being lied to. And that can feel really exhausting because it feels as though 
the entire pressure of all decision-making is on me. That's really isolating and that's really exhausting. And I think what we saw with this community organisation is when we meet each other, when we speak with one another, we learn to trust each other again. And in that trust, there's such relief because you can just go, I can show up as 100% of, of what I can do knowing that you have 100% to offer as well and that you might be able to do the next step and I don't have to go A to Z, I can just go A to B. And I think that, that feeling of understanding that we can then be at 100% between A and B because we don't need to save our energy to get to the end of the alphabet means that we show up with a lot more energy for each other. The other thing that I'm very curious to know kind of your thoughts on is as this kind of flood recovery becomes more constant and, you know, a little bit less elevated in terms of our nervous systems and, you know, the kind of loads that we're carrying as more funding starts to kind of appear in the orbits and people start to kind of act as conduits to get it to the right places. My, my interest in how the community will be left as a structure in the coming months is something that I'm quite like I don't I don't know whether it's going to be a really positive thing that we all went through this and came through this intense period and we're so close and able to you know have this common purpose and then for that to slowly disappear I wonder what I guess yeah our community will be left feeling like and I wondered if you had any thoughts around this I think that it's a choice that wandering only can go so far before the conversation happens of I'm not going to let my community forget. And I think as long as you can show up in that way and I can show up in that way and we remind our neighbours to show up in that way, then then it can't go back. It can't go back unless we forget, unless we let it go back. I think that even beyond choice, there is responsibility in that you lived through this experience and got the absolute privilege of seeing what the world can be, of seeing what community can be, then you have a responsibility to live up to that. You have a responsibility to make sure that that is not forgotten, that is not slipped down. And you have a responsibility to keep living in that. Because we were the lucky ones. We got to experience it. The majority of the world probably won't. So it's our job now, now that we've seen it, now that we've lived it, to do everything that we possibly can to share about those experiences and to keep them existing, to keep them alive, to keep those tethers that we have to each other going. It's not just a choice. It's actually a responsibility. I also wanted to ask you, because you've had your eyes and ears on the ground, is there anything that you know, as a community and beyond, people need to be aware of in terms of some of the unseen dangers or risks of this kind of work, whether that be on the mental or physical or any level? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's a big one. <laughs> no, it's just... Um, I think it's almost a self-reflection that's necessary at this point for me. Um, I think a lot of us have been functioning on adrenaline and excitement and joy and 
It's funny, the other day I was talking to one of the counsellors on site at Crew Mail, just I was having a sandwich and she was sitting next to me and you know, she asked me, oh, have you been sleeping? And I was like, oh, well, when I'm asleep, but it takes me, you know, maybe three hours to fall asleep. And she was like, that's interesting. And I was like, hmm, yes, I hadn't thought of that. It is interesting. She's like, and it doesn't usually. And I was like, no, no, it doesn't. And then she ran me through a whole bunch of questions. And she's like, so it sounds like you're in adrenaline overdrive. And I was like, wow, I had not noticed that. <laughs> I think it's really easy to get lost and almost addicted to the feeling of purpose. And I think that I've really fallen a little bit um, a little bit deeply into that. I've sensed in myself a real reticence to rest and stop when I do a completely overwhelming guilt that I'm okay, that my house is okay. I ended up with a pulmonary tract infection, needing Ventolin four times a day minimum. And I still can't stop. I still can't stop because I see all the work that needs to be done and I hear all the calls and I'm getting texts throughout the day of you know, new houses that need help. And that's a really overwhelming feeling. So in truth, I don't know if I should be giving advice or thoughts to anyone on this because I think I'm personally not dealing with it very well but I think that's the truth for a lot of us is that when you're so deep in the belly of the whale it feels like my world has become only that and sometimes I drive down into Byron and it's as if nothing has changed there and it makes me so angry it makes me so angry and it's not that family's fault who's having an ice cream. They are entitled to have an ice cream. Hell, they probably deserve that ice cream. But I'm so torn in, in my understanding of what's happening in the world. Is, you know, Part of me is feeling so fed and so enriched and so deeply purposeful. Like more than I ever have in my life. Like I can see that half a day of my work can change somebody's life. And that is such a beautiful feeling. But I think that that's so addictive that I'm leaving behind a lot of the other parts of myself. Like I haven't played music since the floods. I usually play every day. and I think that there's a part of me that's now deeply unfed because I'm so addicted to the feeling of helping. And, you know, that's, that's beyond the that, – that's beyond anything that I currently can understand. But I think it might be valuable just speaking it because I think a lot of people are feeling the same way of, of that, almost, almost like an unstoppable nature. But at the same time, you know, then the taking unnecessary risks, like there is nothing unsafe about working in the sludge if you were wearing proper safety equipment. And it's certainly not because I'd been doing it for two weeks that I could just take my face mask off, but I did. I did because it became my new normal. And I got into my head and I was like, well, it's fine. My immune system probably adapted to it. It had not because sludge is still toxic. And I think there's a certain risk and, you know, we've just talked about our responsibility to keep hold 
on the gifts that were given to us through this community, through this new way of seeing the world. And I think we also have a responsibility to keep each other grounded in truth and reality because I think I lose track of what's actually happening because it's so insular in the situation of emergency. It really feels as though this is everything in the world, that it's super jarring exiting it. And I think maybe I've not I've not taken responsibility for myself in that way of, of tapping back into what's actually happening in the world outside of me, outside of here, outside of this situation. And maybe on the outside world there's, there's lightness and joy that's completely entitled to be there. I love that. I think it was probably last week that I was scrolling on Instagram and there was dead moments between trying to get to sleep and not being able to get to sleep and just being like, oh, fine, I'll just open up the vortex and see what's happening. And there was a quote somewhere that I read and at first it was really jarring. Like it, it, I had a visceral, like angry reaction to it because it kind of was to the point of there is always going to be a crisis somewhere on one side of the world whilst on the other people dance and are having the most beautiful time of their lives and I was like it's diminishing people's experiences and and then I was like oh hold on it's kind of the exact thing I've been doing to joy as well like I've been diminishing the role of joy because my sense of purpose my inner fire is so raging and it's so real I had that moment of like oh I don't need to think in binaries doesn't need to be a binary opposition of this or that. Because when we look at the unfolding of the past few weeks, it has been this and that. Mm-hmm. It has been the deepest joy and purpose and love pouring out everywhere in the midst of destruction and chaos and, you know, the stench of death, like, in certain places. Like, it has been the absolute most extreme of everything it's wild. That's really where we're moving to as not just conscious beings or in the world. It's, you know, we don't need more toxic positivity. We don't need more positivity and we don't need more negativity. We need more minds who are capable of holding those two, of that ease and that flow of understanding that it's not even a spectrum and sometimes you're in a good mood and sometimes you're in a bad mood and sometimes you're in the middle. It's that... Everything exists at once. Right? Everything is multiplicity. And maybe there is such a deep role of joy in terror because not that they need to balance each other out, but because when we feel really strong things, we feel everything really strongly. And that we can feel genuine grief and heartbreak by seeing someone's home torn apart and feel so much love and gratitude for the person whose hand you're holding while you're watching it. Mm. Right? They're not opposing, they're not balancing each other out and they're maybe not even interacting. They're just existing at the same time. But I think what you're talking about and what I'm talking about with this thing of how is everybody acting as if it's okay when it's not okay? Like what we're talking about is actually our experience of of living on the flip side of privilege Mm. that actually most of our lives we've felt okay. We've been okay. Our world hasn't fallen apart. And now we're on the flip side of that coin and we're like, what is this? How dare the world be this unfair <laughs> and uncouth <laughs> and wrong? <laughs> and it's like, wow, this is actually what the other side of the coin feels like. Mm. And it's almost a beautiful opportunity for us to observe that feeling and understand others better, right? Of like, understand 
what opposite experiences feel like. Right? And in the same time as we're still deserving of going to dinner parties and dancing with each other on the beach, sometimes maybe that could make us angry. We're watching other people do it. And it's like all those things exist at the same time and they're not better or worse. It's not an ideal outcome or an ideal version of the person. To there just is this insane intensity to what the, the floods gave us. I mean, we were literally locked in, right? It was like everything human just like enhanced. <laughs> everything just... <laughs> and in that, I think we, we were given so much clarity, so much truth. And I'm personally very grateful. I am too. And I think that was a def, like a very definitive moment for me where it would have been last week actually. And I think I was in the thick of these really high level conversations that are red taped from every side and I just found myself it was like there was a switch somewhere in me and it was like I had exhausted because of you know I think it's been or four weeks or since it's all three I'm like I don't even know what it's anymore (laughs) but there was a moment where I could feel my capacity for emotion had been so overdrawn Like it's like I'd been going to that bank account and my empathy, like I'm a very empathetic person naturally and I was just so stretched that it was like I broke. Mm -hmm. Like there was a switch and I just was numb and I couldn't feel joy. I couldn't feel sadness. I wasn't angry. I wasn't wasn't anything. I was just like – and it wasn't dissociation. It was like I was so in my body and I felt nothing. And that was when I was like, okay. <laughs> we need to break. <laughs> I was like, I think I need a time out. Um, because I would rather, and it was in those moments, because when I get to those extreme places, you know, I have conversations with myself of like, maybe it would be better if I just felt nothing for a bit and could just be a robot, could just do the thing. And after like two or three days spent like that, I was, I realised you can take anything away from me, but do not take away my capacity to feel and to be with other humans on a genuine emotional present level and I think that's the you know a a testing ground for our our own strength having those moments where you get to choose who you want to be and who you show up as it's really this idea that you're talking about of showing up as a person for another person I think is is what we need. That that is the solution. And I think that process that you've just shared of wanting sometimes to shut down and just show up for what needs to be done as a robot is actually completely fictitious because that doesn't allow you to do what needs to be done. What needs to be done is for people to show up as people, to find another person and to ask them, what do you need? And to start there, like throughout my days, I see people arriving hot off the block going, okay, tell us how to help. I'm going, take a breath, find someone who looks like they need help and ask them what they'd like from you. Meet them there in that place. And again, that solidarity. Not the idea of like, I am super person coming to help. I am so charitable and kind. It's going, no, you're a person who can feel. You can feel that something needs doing. But you don't know what that is because you're not the one with the need. You're the one with the capacity. 
So go see the person with the need and ask them, how do I help? Rather than coming in with systems and figures and preconceived ideas and notions of wanting to feed your own self-esteem, how do you just show up with capacity to feed another person's need? And it's actually that simple. And I think we have been lied to. I think that we have been absolutely lost somewhere along the way. We got confused that being a person required all these complex things that being with each other and that helping required trainings and approvals and certificates, but it doesn't. Being with each other and helping each other is our most natural state of being and showing up in an empathetic way with capacity is the most powerful thing you can do. And once you are holding that power, listen. Just listen to what the need is. And it is so easy to help and that that feeling that solidarity of me going hey i have capacity you have need that doesn't make anyone the victim doesn't make anybody the hero it just evens out an imbalance and it feels so good for everyone involved i think it might just be the point of being human is that all of us have a set of needs and a set of capacities. And isn't it just extraordinary to think that we have the capacity to meet somebody else's need and that others have the capacity to meet ours? Like that might just be why we're here. (laughs) For anyone who's still wanting to help outside of this region, I think helping us not forget, keeping us accountable to who we've been is, is the most beautiful assistance that we can have i think that we're going to be so busy for so long here but if you know the world can echo back to us you know the beauty of what's happened here to see the value of our experience not as just a state of emergency but as all the learning that we've done to hear us truly to, to give it a goal to give it a purpose it's interesting when you just said that state of emergency. It, my mind immediately like heard state of emergence, mm. you know, and I feel like that is collectively what has been such a theme yeah. for so many people. And I really want to thank you for sharing these stories about humanity and really shedding light on the nuances and the, the depth and the gravity Mm. Um, of what has been, you know, a shared reality for many of us. Mm. So thank you for coming and spending your time with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our community is in dire need of funds to home people as their homes are rebuilt and local infrastructure is revived. We are also developing mental health support strategies for our victims, volunteers and wider community at this time. If you are in a position to donate, please go to channelvoid.com.au forward slash society.